Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 34. A lot of our、uh, young engineers are getting access to 3D printing at an early age. So in the next three, five, ten years' time, 3D printing it won't be a novelty type of technology. The new workforce is more inclined to use 3D printing in their workflow. And and seeing how they can implement it into their business. One significant part to be printed that's being used heavily is a custom steering wheel bracket with paddles. It's quite a complex geometry, but obviously with 3D printing, it allowed us to make such a complex design. And because it's a racing wheel, ergonomics matter a lot. So how the driver feels for it, and you can't really just machine parts for a steering wheel. Various iterations of it. Because that'll obviously take too long for us, so we were pumping out several parts of different designs and ergonomic styles for drivers to see how it feels. And we got to a point where we got a very comfortable paddle system going, where drivers were complimenting it. it feels great. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 34th episode of the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays. Our episode today is a part of the partner series within Talking Additive, a chance to see behind the curtains how long-term Ultimaker partners help businesses adopt 3D printing at the local level. And today, our co-host is Kawe Lim, Creative Director at Imaginables in Melbourne, Australia. Imaginables is a company whose mission is to assist industries in the adoption and implementation of additive manufacturing into the workflow. And Kawe himself has over 15 years' experience as an architect, designer for unique 3D printed fashion pieces, and has been a part of the evolution of the desktop 3D printing field from garage hobbyist to its use in universities and top industries today. The guest he will be introducing for the second half of the episode is Josh. Sacris from the RMIT racing team. More on that story in the second half of the show. But first, Kawe, thank you for joining us on Talking Additive today. My name is、uh, Kawe, and I am one of the directors at Imaginables. Imaginables are the official distributor of Ultimaker in Australia, and we have been in operation for over eight years, providing support and expert advice to all our Ultimaker customers in Australia. I'm one of the directors, and I am in charge of marketing, building our reseller network in Australia, and also export. I do a lot of support for our customers and had experience with all the Ultimaker models and pretty much know the ins and outs of all the Ultimaker printers. So, how did you first encounter three D printing? Maybe nine or ten years ago, I started hearing about companies like MakerBot who were making three D printing more accessible, and that really intrigued me. And I guess the turning point was when I bought a copy of. Make magazine's very first 3D printing shootout, which gave readers a first glimpse of and comparison of all the current 3D printers, desktop 3D printers on the market. It gave a great overview of all the printers and made me decide to go with Ultimaker. I think the reviews were quite good around the Ultimaker, and I liked the open source nature of the platform. 
So from there, I ordered my first 3D printer, the Ultimaker Original, which came in sort of a kit form where you put together. It was made of CNC plywood and it came with all the electronic components and put together my first 3D printer. And from there, I pretty much became consumed by all the possibilities I could create with the 3D printer. I was pretty much looking at everything in the house that I could 3D print and somehow make better. I created a lot of objects around the house. I got really involved in looking for 3D printing design competitions because I come from a design background. I was an architect back then and I entered into quite a few design competitions and won a few of them. I'm not sure if it was because I had a good design or perhaps because back then it was relatively new and not many people were entering these design competitions. So I came across a 3D printing design competition in Singapore around fashion. It called for entries for a fashion piece that was 3D printed. I didn't have any background in fashion, but I used kind of my skills from architecture to try and create a dress. I was very interested in making something wearable, something no one has really seen before. So I went about and created this 3D printed dress and submitted it as an entry and won first place, uh, which was fantastic. The prize money was quite decent as well. So that money went into funding my hobby even more. During that time, it was pretty much the first wearable fashion piece that was 3D printed on the desktop 3D printer. After that fashion entry, Ultimaker caught notice of what I was doing. They invited me to create a piece for them, a fashion piece, to be showcased in New York at a 3D printer showcase event with other fashion designers, 3D fashion designers, to be showcased on the runway. One thing that I found from the first piece that I created was it was not very comfortable to wear. I was using this thing called flexible PLA back then. It was not TPU. It's some sort of formulation of PLA that made it a bit flexible. I worked on trying to make it more flexible, more breathable by having more apertures and adding more design motifs into the design. What came out of that was a more flowy type and movable dress that was 3D printed on my little Ultimaker. And all the pieces were all stitched on the floor of my kitchen. I was stitching it all together on the kitchen floor. And two weeks later, it was on the model in New York on the runway with some of the great 3D fashion designers of our time. Yeah, it was quite an honor to have my piece showcased with some of those really well-known designers. And that kind of also opened the doors to a few other things where I was invited to record a documentary with Discovery Channel about how these 3D printers could 3D print fashion. There was also an opportunity to have the dress presented in the White House during the Obama era, where Michelle Obama had organized a fashion event in the White House. So my dress managed to grace the halls of the White House. Unfortunately, I didn't go. Only my my dress was invited. Still a great honor to have that. And so then what then led you to Imaginables? So unbeknownst to me, around the same time while I was discovering Ultimaker, my now business partner, Jin Ho, who is the managing director of Imaginals, was kind of on the same journey as me. He also ordered his first Ultimaker original and was uh, quite smitten by it. 
while I was engrossed in creating all these designs with my 3D printer and entering all these design competitions, he was looking at how he could bring Ultimaker into Australia and become like the representative for Ultimaker. So while I was busy playing with the Ultimaker, Jin was courting Ultimaker to obtain the license to sell Ultimaker into Australia. A few years later, we bump into each other at one of the first 3D printing conferences in Australia, where I was giving a talk on my foray into 3D printing fashion. And he approached me to see if I was interested in joining his business. Yeah, I was interested back then, but I didn't join Jin straight away because I was still very committed to my job. I, I was an architect and I had developed a strong career and was a senior associate at one of Australia's biggest architectural firms and was involved in creating some of Australia's metropolitan buildings and was very exciting. So I was very focused in that career path. But alas, in the last years, architecture kind of wore me down. I became a bit jaded <laughs> with all the work and sweat that I put into my career and came to a point when I was ready to take a leap of faith and uh, try something different. So that was when I quit my job and joined Jin at Imaginables. And yeah, the rest is history. And so, you know, now that you've found a new home, a new career, what do you find inspiring about providing 3D printing technology to customers? What I find very interesting with um, this job is I, I get to meet a wide range of people. The beauty about 3D printing is that it's not solely focused on one industry. The opportunities for what you could 3D print is quite wide in terms of its application. So I've met with artists, sculptors, people creating electronics. We had a customer who was creating licensed collectibles for the cinema. So they had access to some of the up-and-coming movies that weren't even announced yet. So get to meet a lot of interesting people and see how they apply 3D printing into their industry. That's been quite rewarding in that sense. So how do you and your team, the resellers across Australia, really help customers succeed with 3D printing in their organizations? Usually what we do is we want to understand what they're trying to achieve because we don't have to set a false expectation of our 3D printers. Sometimes we get customers that may be interested in doing something around dental. However, I believe at this point, maybe dental is not the right application for Ultimaker 3D printers, perhaps. In some cases, we might direct them to a more suitable technology like DLP or like Formlabs with the resin printing. We try and see how it would fit into their business and not become like a white elephant <laughs> that's just sitting there. We like to see our printers in use in their business. One of the ways that we help as well is, especially if it's a new customer, we ask them to give us a sample, which they would likely print in their business and print a free sample for them to be able to assess its quality and see if it's fit for their purpose. For us, how we sell our product is we let the 3D printer speak for itself, the output of the 3D printer. We encourage our customers to maybe get the same sample from different 3D printers and make their own decision, which is the better choice for them. And right now, what is the range of additive manufacturing technologies that you offer there? So at Imaginables, 
we like to prioritize our after sales and, and we feel like if we took on more products and different technologies that, that might affect our after sales service for our customers. So we have a very limited offering at the moment. We're just concentrating on Ultimaker 3D printers. We just concentrating on FFF technology for the moment. Well, that's the kind of technology I like. So that's excellent. So what industries are the most popular among your customers right now? Right now, our top verticals is definitely still education. Education is one of our biggest sectors. And surprisingly, in the last year or so, we've seen an increase in defense. So defense is also our vertical here in Australia. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have no idea what they are doing in defense. They're very hush and secretive. I would love to find out how they're using our printers, but it's all top secret. <laughs> That's true for customers across the globe. It's interesting. Defense in general has been exploring additive in more detail lately. And in some cases, just in terms of finding out how it's useful for training and things like this. But yeah, it is quite mysterious sometimes. So now I'd love to hear from you about something less mysterious. I wanted to talk a little bit about where things are heading next. So first, where are things going next for imaginables? Well, for Imaginals, we'll continue to grow and support our customers in Australia. We have been approached by many 3D printer manufacturers to help carry their brand into Australia after seeing what we have been doing with Ultimaker. However, as you can see, we are very selective with the products that we sell into Australia and we only carry products that we believe in and have confidence in and also have the expertise to help support our customers. And that's why we prioritize our after-sales service for our customers when we are looking at growing the business. We're all in it to grow as Ultimaker grows. I mean, Ultimaker has grown tremendously in the past 10 years. I think they started off in a, a shed in the countryside of Netherlands, which I had the opportunity to visit back then. And now they're one of the uh, largest 3D printing companies in the world. And we've been blessed to be able to go on the journey of growth with Ultimaker throughout these years. That's, that's very nice. Thank, thank you for saying that. So now taking the lens even wider, what are your impressions of the shifting roles for 3D printing and FFF within industry today? I do see that we are seeing a lot more customers looking at end-use parts for 3D printing. So we're seeing a growth of customers who are creating final products with 3D printer, using it like a small batch manufacturing. For example, we have one customer, Suba Engineering, who manufacture digital microscopes, and they alter their design quite often, coming up with new uh, models of their digital microscope. And what they found was 3D printing fit their needs, and they were 3D printing the housing for their microscopes and just putting maybe a two-pack automotive paint on the housing and just by doing that it made it look like a finished product like a injection molded and that was enough for them because creating the molds for injection molding would be a huge investment for them so that really fit their purpose we're seeing a lot of customers using 3d printing to make jigs and fixtures which is quite interesting in the aircraft industry that's very helpful. And you sort of covered this, but what role do you think 3D printing will play in some of your customers' projects in three years' time and in 10 years' time, considering how they're using it today? 
So, like I mentioned in the beginning, education is still one of our biggest sectors, and and that that has been great in the sense that a lot of our young engineers are getting access to 3D printing at an early age. So, in the next three. Five, 10 years time, 3D printing would be more in tune, bred into the workflow of the next workforce. It, it won't be a novelty type of technology. They would be seeing that now the new workforce is more technology inclined to use 3D printing in their workflow and, and seeing how they can implement it into their business. When I reached out to you to find the perfect customer of yours to, to share in this episode, you had said that RMIT racing would be really interesting. And I've met with them and they're fantastic. Do you want to share a brief introduction to them and why uh, you felt they would be really perfect for this show? Yeah, so RMIT Racing, they were actually looking for sponsorship for us to pump in some marketing money to help with their development of their racing car. However, I was more interested in helping them in terms of making sure that they use the 3D printer to help develop their project. So as a counter offer, what I did was I offered them the use of our S-Line 3D printer alone for them to experiment and try out what applications that can come up with from the 3D printer for their racing car. And rather than just pumping money and getting our Imaginables logo on their race car, I was more interested in seeing what applications you can come up with that would be applied into their project. So one of the conditions that I suggested with the loan of the 3D printer and with uh, a few specialist materials that we, we gave to them was perhaps they could keep a diary, a project diary of all the application pieces that they could identify in their project and highlight them and record it for us, which I think would be uh, well more informative and more useful as a means to capture and illustrate different applications in the automotive industry. Excellent. The last question is sort of a general one for talking out of listeners. What are some tips that you can pass on to talking out of listeners to help them grow 3D printing solutions within their own companies, institutions, and you know, design and engineering practices? I guess tips I could give is don't be afraid to play and experiment. And that's how I got into this, by just having fun and playing and experimenting with what I can do with the 3D printers. And then continue to learn from what others are doing. There's a lot of examples and case studies that you can have a look at to see how other companies are using 3D printing and learn from their techniques. And the beauty about that is 3D printing allows you to make failures without much consequence. Failure is intrinsically part of the process, so don't be afraid to fail. I mean, it's pretty much the first step to a successful project. Thank you so much for joining for Talking Out of today. Really appreciate chatting with you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity to join your Talking Additive. I've been a long-time listener, first-time presenter. Yeah, it's great to be part of your show. Our first guest was Kawei Lim, Creative Director of Imaginables. Next up is Josh Sakris from RMIT Racing, the guest that Kawei invited us to highlight in this episode. First of all, Josh, thank you so much for joining on Talking Additive. That's right. No worries. Glad to be here. My name is Josh Sakris. My role for the uh, RMIT racing team as an electronics lead is to overlook and obviously take part in the design and manufacturing and testing of a complete 
electronics package for essentially a fully functioning race car. So really cool stuff. And it's a Formula style race car. So it's an open wheeled vehicle like how you see in Formula One. So when last I chatted with you, you were still a student. You've now graduated. So what are you doing right now? Have you already moved on to something else? Are you still working on some projects you already started? Yeah, I did graduate around December-ish time, but that didn't really stop me from doing more stuff on the team. So I'm still technically electronics lead for the team, but until I find another electronics lead, I'm doing extra work for the design for 2022. But I'm hopefully wrapping up in a few weeks' time just so I can get them started with the electronic system before I depart. And we'll talk in detail about Formula SE in the next section. But wanted to learn a little bit more about you. I'm wondering how you first encountered 3D printers. It was actually back in 2017. So that was my first year of uni. And back then, I only really ever heard of 3D printing on YouTube and some friends talk about it here and there and never really understood the significance other than it being like really cool technology. I got to see it firsthand at a manufacturing precinct in the city in first year because they wanted to demonstrate how it works, obviously, and show us what it can do. They gave us an opportunity just to pick out a print from, and this is where the first time I saw Thingiverse, they just said, search for anything. I found something, it was just a little cute cartoon uh, toy reimagined as a 3D print. And I printed that. They didn't really go too much in depth as to how to print it and what sort of different factors there are in printing. It was more just pick this out, print it so you can see what it looks like. And I did really appreciate that because initially when I thought about 3D printing, I thought it was going to be very brittle and very weak because I think before that, I was thinking 3D pens, like the really like 3D prints where you do it in free air. So I was like, oh, this would be weak and brittle. But when I first held it, I was very surprised by just how strong it could be. So I was really imagining all the possibilities to what else you can do with it. On top of the, just this little toy that I had that now is displayed on my desk at home. Otherwise, they didn't really go in depth too much into that. But from that, I was still really impressed. I was also impressed because I thought it would take longer than that. It was only like an hour for my print and it's been pretty much really exciting from there. Uh, so what led you to get involved with our MIT racing? It was third year that I heard about the team. They had an open day and I remember looking at the car and being really intimidated by it. <laughs> I was almost afraid because they promoted in third year that we'd be doing more hands-on stuff. And so when I saw this race car, I thought I'd have to be doing this, but I didn't realize it was just a club that was optional. And so I saw people signing up and I was just imagining to myself, I can't imagine ever doing that. And I didn't for the next few weeks after that open day, because I was, I was really just afraid. <laughs> I was so intimidated because the car, when you just show it in its entirety, just by itself sitting there, it looks very complex. It's a lot of systems that you can't really understand until looking further into it and obviously being on the team. But on the surface, it's just, it's a brilliant piece of engineering. You feel like it's really unachievable, but it wasn't until the faculty advisor came into one of my mechatronics lectures in first week of uni and he promoted it really well and basically sold it to me where he broke down each system into more manageable bite-sized engineering work and obviously some of that included electronics which i found that because i'm in a mechatronics degree i had the option to explore both mechanical electronics i found that electronics really excited me so i saw what you can do electronics wise which meant that I, I didn't necessarily have to learn every system in the car. I could maybe just focus on one thing like electronics. And so I saw what cool stuff you can do there. And then I simply attended the follow-up session, which really was sold me in the end because there was free lunch. So I feel like that was a really good part on his, on his end because they were offering free sausages. So what better <laughs> way to have free lunch, but also talk about the car because they displayed it as well. Well, so, okay. So imagine that the talking additive audience has come in to, to visit the RMIT racing team 
how would you introduce what it is that you all do? The goals, the, the types of projects, the people involved. Tell me about this. From, say, an engineering standpoint, if you're already doing engineering and you only heard about RMT racing, I'd say this is the closest thing you can get to a engineering experience whilst you're at uni because although a majority of the design is done in-house, you're still exposing yourself out there to real people, real companies, really interacting and communicating with these engineers in the industry. It's crazy. And you don't really do that in any of your courses. So for the engineering standpoint, it's about that exposure to me, exposure to real world engineers. And then from maybe a non-engineering standpoint, we still like to take in non-engineering students. So that could be media, that could be business managers. And it's still a huge part of Formula Student because there's still business events. There's a marketing event. It's all about promoting and uh, especially with all our sponsorships, we must obviously put ourselves out there. It's really diverse in terms of what you can do. It's not all about engineers coming into our team because even if you're joining as a non-engineer, it's still probably going to be the best experience whilst you're at uni because there's only so much your course can offer. So obviously you have to be a student, but I'd say for any student, it's still worth joining. Talk to me about Formula SE in general. What is that global challenge? Yeah, so it's a challenge where students come together and they engineer or at least design, manufacture, test and compete a formula style race vehicle, so the open wheels, against other universities. And so that's the the surface level of things. But on top of that, you're obviously learning all those things that we talked about before, as in, I haven't talked about this before, but you're learning about how to problem solve, obviously you're going through the whole engineering design process. And I believe that's what the organizers have sort of made this for. Although it's a competition where you want to beat other unis, because that's obviously awesome. Ultimately, no matter where you're ranked, I think everyone gets the same amount of experience and exposure to engineering. I guess if you are doing really well, then you may as well strive for the top. But it's a competition where you really understand the engineering processes and put it into practice from your course. You've mentioned we've talked about this in the past that you might have been apprehensive at first, but you really wanted hands-on. Do you think students are intentionally looking for problem-solving skills, 21st century skills, things like that? Or do you think that just happens and maybe they're, they're pulled in by racing and competition? I'd say the latter, to be honest, because for me, it was intimidating. And then I'd say if you were to join, it's really for the fun of it, because then some people just join to drive, to be honest. There is obviously that incentive that people tell you once you have this on your resume, (laughs) that's just being completely transparent. Once you have this on your resume, apparently this is what people look for, just extracurricular stuff. I was I'm just wanting to get more of a portrait of what kind of goals people had for getting involved. Yeah, a lot of it is trying to see how you can problem solve in different ways because although you might be a good problem solver, there's so many different ways you didn't know you could problem solve. And I think you really get that by being in a team and being in a collaborative environment rather than just trying to do it yourself because obviously you're going to get exposed to other people's skills and you can take that as your own. But also, obviously, it's very different once you have this one problem on the screen because most of the time it was online for us. Everyone just puts their hands up and sees what they can do here or there. Sometimes you get this very bizarre out-of-the-box idea, but it's so good that you just remember it and then you can sort of apply that out-of-the-box thinking to yourself. Can you remember something specifically you did where you solved the problem and you're really sort of excited about this interesting way? Quite hysterical ones, actually. Sometimes if it's something that we can't access, rather than trying to reposition it, we just cut big holes in places that you think initially would be not an elegant solution, but when you think about it, it has no negative effect on... Because we have a, a full chassis made out of carbon fiber. You could make these weird decisions like cutting holes in your chassis, but there's no negative effect to it. And it's probably the easiest solution for us. So we have a lot of problems that you would overthink and over-engineer, but just takes 
more opinions and more eyes for us to find out. Each year you build a formula style car, Mm -hmm. but help us understand what kinds of approaches are popular there. What's unique about the RMIT racing team's approach? Introduce me to the cycle of building one of these vehicles. Yeah, we only recently changed to an 18-month development cycle. Initially, it was 12 months, but we found that we really want to emphasize on testing time. So that's why we have six months of design, six months of manufacturing, and then the last six months of testing. And so we're very sort of systematic with things. However, we are open to other processes if anyone just recommends it. But for now, this has sort of been working for a few years now. Anyway, you start with a problem. It can be very specific or it can be very broad whether it's design electronic system or design this brake light. And we break it down in a team on the requirements and constraints that we're bound to. And so from that, then we start concepting once we fully understand the problem. And the concepting phase for us is very open to anything, essentially. It's obviously non-judgment so that we can get the best ideas possible. And from there, we like to benchmark. So that's a lot of prototyping. And so from there, you go into your detailed design. It's a very specific engineering design process. So how many people are on the electronics team and how many people in general within the racing team as a whole? So at the moment, there are 10 people in the electronics team. At the very beginning, there were only three, including myself. So myself, my second in command, and then a new member. So it was quite difficult at the start, but I think I just got lucky with my 2IC and my new member because they picked up really quick and they built the foundation for the electronics system because that was designing the wiring harness. That's what you really need to make the car work. Everything else is extra. And then in terms of the wider team, it's hard to put a number on it because it depends on how many active members you have. And if we were talking about active members, I'd say around 50. But if you look at, if you essentially look at the email list, technically we have 100 plus, but it really depends who's actually active or not. But we, I'd say we have 50 active members and then it's, it's a pretty mixed distribution across the systems. Some have a lot, some don't have many But um, again, if we're ever short on members in one system, we always lend over some. And we don't force them, of course, because some people don't want to learn electronics if they're a mechanical student. But you'll be surprised how many mechanical students have joined the electronics team just because they're curious and they want to expand their engineering knowledge into electronics because it's sort of interchangeable anyway, like the concepts of mechanical electronics. So how many people on the team are working on each of these problems? Are there multiple parallel teams working or are you always moving through system by system with everybody in coordinated effort? It's pretty parallel at the moment. So we have five systems. So that's powertrain, vehicle dynamics, chassis, aerodynamics, and electronics. And then obviously within those systems, that's where we are working together collaboratively. But within the the whole team, within those five systems, we have obviously our, our main team meeting where we present issues with integration between each system. But other than that, once we're in our own system like electronics, we all are aware of our tasks because we all have our own job boards. And then we all have a system where we report to this person and then we report to this person. Or who do we go to for help if we're in trouble? But then obviously, say like powertrain, like our system is very involved with powertrain because we used to be one system, powertrain electronics. And so there's still sort of that active engagement between each system, depending on who you are. But I'd say it is pretty parallel in terms of work that happens with each system because for electronics, I'm not necessarily concerned with, say, the aerodynamics of the wings or the rear wing. However, we still offer the opportunity to learn those things because some people might be open to CFD or computational floor dynamics because that's some things that you just want to learn in general as an engineer. So people do jump from systems to systems, but 
you wouldn't work on the same two systems unless it is relevant, like a dynamic drag reduction system or DRS where your wing has to move. You need aerodynamics engineers for that. You need electronics engineers. There are projects on the side that you need systems to work together on, but majority of the time electronics works on their own things because we're very involved in our systems and sensors and stuff. The closest we'd get to collaborating is probably just enclosures <laughs> design from chassis for our electronics parts. Where do you think you might take this passion for working on a project like this? Do you think that you will explore racing or other similar, like a product with a lot of teams and systems? Yeah. So in terms of racing, um, it's been sort of a roller coaster where I've had phases where, you know, motorsport is really cool. And a lot of our team have already gone into motorsport, like into V8 supercars already. And there have been motors for me where maybe this is where I want to go. But then I've had days from, I've looked at other areas because the racing team obviously has got me into racing, but it's also got me into a lot of things I didn't know about. So there's a lot of cool sensors out there and cool technologies I never knew was possible. And it's interchangeable in terms of what we learn racing and what's actually out there. So especially like electronics wise, the amount of intricate or at least very advanced sensors and control systems you can get or you can design for, it was really interesting to me and seeing what like it's more stuff that we bought and it's stuff that I feel like I could make this. <laughs> it really depends where I want to go in the end. And I'm sort of on the fence with both because obviously motorsport is fun, but I obviously see the importance and significance of going into essentially a rapidly evolving times with electronics. Early in this discussion, you mentioned that you draw students from all kinds of backgrounds and that there's roles for people beyond engineering. But I'm curious about the pool as a whole. Tell me about RMIT University. It's tremendous, right? What is the size of it? It's quite a lot. I think it's more than any other uni. So yeah, 90,000 plus. And a lot of it is international students. So they're very open to being diverse and being open. The uh, RMIT racing team, it was founded in 1999. I obviously joined in 2017, so I'm not too familiar with all the events past that. So I'm going off what I've heard from a faculty advisor, but just going back through history, because I was looking at photos of past versions of our car. We never really, here's the thing, we were competitive back then, but if you were to compete with that same car, it wouldn't be the same. You'd get beaten quite bad <laughs> these days. So it just shows how much we've evolved. Because back then, there wasn't much aerodynamics. I feel like we didn't really start aerodynamics until probably 2010. And that's because majority of the competition, no one really had aerodynamics. And so we were really competitive. So I believe we actually won a world championship in 2008. And then they moved on to Germany. And they ranked pretty high there. And then from there, I believe they competed in the UK. And they won a world championship there. And mind you, this is without aerodynamics. So it just shows how much it's evolved until now. And so from then, that was the peak of the team, I'd say. From then, it hasn't been the smoothest ride. So reliability was a large issue. And that sort of followed through actually up until 2018, where I think 2018 was our last major failure, where the center of our wheel just broke off. And that was during the last event. So we sort of had bad luck. And so it was 2019, coincidentally, when I joined. But that's when a lot of other people joined as well. Like one of our largest intakes, there was like 100 plus people who signed up or submitted ex expression of interest after that day. It's where we got so many different engineers and minds to really see what went wrong in the previous years, see where we can do better. And that led to, in 2019, a car that did tremendously well and was rewarded by being the most improved team for that year. 
So if you were to look at the rankings, we improved by 300 ranks. We were initially 400. We got all the way back up to 100 just from that one good season. On top of that overall ranking to us didn't be much because for the individual events, we set the Australasian record for fastest car in acceleration, which is testing your car how fast it goes from zero to 75 meters. So we smashed that record. We were very confident and everyone was happy with themselves. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about 3D printing. What role does 3D printing play at RMIT Racing? So initially, when we got one of our first 3D printers, it was a lot of trying to design and print for parts that will make it onto the car as a final part. But we found that a lot of use from 3D printer comes in prototyping for us because we machine stuff pretty much internationally because it's pretty difficult these days during COVID where it would take way too long to get a quote and get things quoted to machine stuff, even in Melbourne. So... Before we ever do that, we'd like to prototype using 3D printing and sort of visualize it. We'd print it to scale, make sure everything's correct. And sometimes if it's, depends on what the part is, we would fit it to the car or fit it to the mated part that you need to go to to see if it functions properly as well. I remember there were days where we wouldn't prototype a part or we wouldn't revise a part and we'd send it off to get it machined and then we'd find mistakes. One little mistake that could have been found if we were to do the proper prototyping practice. And so these, this would be like a whole three weeks wasted because it'd take a while to get things machined. So who in the team uses the Ultimakers and what parts were you creating with those? We've made it mandatory that you first need to do an induction for it. So you understand how to use it and not break it. And so with that, we've only locked it down to the system heads. So five system heads, including the team leader. So I'd say six people in total. And we're using the cloud feature with the Ultimaker S3. So it's been really useful for us, especially during lockdown, because one person would have the printer. In this case, I had the printer at home, and then people would send prints over the cloud, and it's really useful for them. So that was very useful. And then in terms of the parts we printed, one significant one that's being used heavily is a custom steering wheel bracket with paddles. So it's an attachment that adapts our steering wheel, our racing wheel, to the adapter on the steering column. It's quite a complex geometry, but obviously with 3D printing, it allowed us to make such a complex design, but something that you can't really machine. And because it's a racing wheel, ergonomics matter a lot. So how the driver feels for it. And you can't really just machine parts for a steering wheel, like various iterations of it, because that'll obviously take too long for us. So we were pumping out several parts of different designs and ergonomic styles for drivers to see how it feels. And we got to a point where we got a very comfortable paddle system going where drivers were complimenting it. It feels great. And that was made out of carbon fiber. It wasn't nylon. I think it was the Pet G variation. And that's been fun so far. And that was one of our first prints with carbon fiber. So we're really impressed. And from there, we've been printing carbon fiber nylon for different mountings, like pretty significant mountings, like our rear diffuser, which is fairly large. It's being held on by to carbon fiber nylon prints. And then you have things for, although you can argue that it's a bit of a, like for simple parts to print, it is obviously cheaper and more economic to have them machined. But for us, again, with that huge lead time and some of these machine parts, so it might go against engineering practices where simple parts aren't necessarily the best of 3D print, but for us in our context and in our case and with COVID, it just made the most sense. And that's been really useful to us. Sometimes the best way to make a part is the way you can make the part right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially during COVID. Yeah. It seems like a lot of our parts that weren't too critical were just 3D printed. But at the same time, we did want to try to make people understand where the limit is with 3D printing because obviously there is a limit and it's not good to just rely on a 3D printer in, in some cases, engineering wise, because you start developing bad habits. And that's something I 
developed in 2019 where I thought I could 3D print everything. And I was 3D printing stuff that shouldn't have been 3D printed. Like I was designing very simple brackets, like L brackets that you otherwise could have probably just bent with a piece of alley and a vice. But I was printing very large pieces as well with not solid infill, but large infills, but with very simple geometry that would be very wasteful for, for filament and would take quite a long time compared to just say fabricating something out at a sheet metal. The chief engineer did tell me that I was developing a bad habit of 3D printing everything where at that time it was quicker to bend something up. And obviously we did have some better machining resources back then 2019 when COVID wasn't a thing. So we could get some stuff done by the uni machining wise. So even taking it to that route by designing something properly and having a machine by the uni, given that we had that resource, was a lot better than printing a very high infill part to account for it being plastic when we had the resources to make it out of aluminium. No, I, I hear you about that. So how long has uh, 3D printing been in use for the team? Was the 2019 the first time or? Yes, I'd say so. Or at least that's when we had our own printer because I only joined in 20. 19. I think in 2018, they had some 3D printed parts, but it had to be done externally. It wasn't up until 2019 where we first got our own 3D printer, but obviously it being new, it may have broken a lot as in it wasn't utilized to its full extent and it wasn't maintained enough where it could just push out prints because every, say, one out of four prints would fail, or maybe one of three prints. Like It was getting bad to a point where there would be days where myself and some others would spend I was trying to fix this printer. So reliability on the printer was a huge thing. So for us at that time, it was still questionable in terms of its use, or at least having our own printer. However, in 2020, with the addition of the Ultimaker, kindly lended from Imaginables, we found so much more use out of it for the fact that it was reliable and we trained students to use it for its intended purpose and not just sending prints and throwing whatever settings at it, assuming they'll be fine. Nice. So I think that's a big thing that we train people up. And then that's where we've realized the significance that it offers to the team. Well, having done some of these studies, is the team planning on using 3D printing more aggressively or in more systems in the future? Yeah, 100%. We already saw it between 2020 and 2021, which is where we had the Ultimaker. We did see a, a huge increase in 3D printed parts and for final parts as well, because we got to a point where some of these geometries were really difficult to do and we'd spend too long doing it. And sometimes we'd, for a lot of our composite parts, they were 3D printer mold and then lay up a part that they found that was actually very difficult to lay up and then found that it was just a waste entirely where you could have just 3D printed that part. And that's what happened to our diffuser mounts. We would just 3D printed the diffuser mounts out of the carbon fiber nylon and that proved to work perfectly. But the thing is, in terms of using it more aggressively, we're at a point where we've made a lot of the parts that we could. But if we were to go further with trying to use it for more structural or critical parts, we're finding it difficult to engineer these things where they would perform as well as, as the metal counterparts. Because when we were designing, say, that diffuser bracket, that's probably the most critical part we've 3D printed because it held pretty much the load of like the diffuser. And there's a jacking bar in the diffuser. So when you check up the car, some of the load goes through those points. We try to model it through a finite element analysis, FEA, and it's just too difficult. I don't think anyone's actually done it. So we couldn't actually model the 3D printing to see if it was structural enough or if it would take the load. We just were conservative and just gave it higher infill. So I think if we were to be more aggressive with it and if we were designed for more critical parts, we'd have to be able to model it, the properties of 3D printing. So how was working with the Imaginables team? Being giving us ongoing support in terms of We've had troubles with certain materials in terms of adhering to the bed. He'd give us recommendations. He'd give us things to try out. And in return, we just 
keep them updated with what we're printing. We have this ongoing printing journal that we fill out after each print, and it gives all the details about why we used 3D printing in the first place for this part, what we learned throughout the printing process. So we include the printing parameters as well, we include photos. We include photos of the catted part and then the printed part. So that's what we're doing in return. And it's working really great. So is that a tip that you would want to suggest to teams that are looking to make better use of 3D printing? Uh, to journal all the parts and kind of track this data? Yeah, 100%. We've always been big on documentation. We haven't been the best at executing it. At this point, I feel like it should be. Before you print your part, look over the entry or the journal entry and see what similar parameters you'd be using from a previous done print and see where you can improve on. Because say, for an example, my flame retardant print, there's so many things I've learned and it would definitely be something that would be valuable to newcomers in the future. That's really helpful to share and hopefully it'd be useful to Talking Out of listeners. Josh, thank you so much for joining on Talking Out of today. It, it was a pleasure talking to you about our MIT racing, the projects, the approaches there, what everybody is learning and the value of this activity. Thank you for sharing. Great to be here. It's really nice being able to talk about my work in racing to someone outside of the racing team because majority of the time I'm expressing all my interests and motives and why I'm on the team to new members that are part of the team. So it's really nice to talk to someone from a completely different country, <laughs> essentially. Thank you again to Conway Lim from Imaginables and Josh Sacris from RMIT Racing for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 34th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn the hashtag TalkingAdditive, all one word. Talking Additive launches new episodes each Tuesday. Next week, join us to meet Alex from City Frames. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Kawe and Josh. Our episode editor is Alexander Seuss. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini. Studio manager, David Roberson. Music and sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer, Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.